What a joint. No more hot water. I can still get that job at Remington. $40 a week? We can get by on that. Yeah, maybe you can, but not me. It's too slow, Bob. I want to do a little living. What's your idea of living? It's not 40 bucks a week. Tell me, when did you get this idea? Oh, I've always had it. Ever since I can remember. And if I don't get it one way, I'll get it the other. I didn't think we'd had it figured out that way. Well, so I've changed my mind. I told you I was no good. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. But I've been kicked around all my life. And from now on, I'm gonna stop kicking back. Delve into histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, cover-ups, conspiracies, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad men who make history and the forces that made them. And uh, I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter. I really like that addition, the the bad men and the forces that make them. And today we have with us a very special guest to talk about bad men, the forces that make them, bad ladies, and everything else. Writer, cultural critic, a uh, general Chicago expert, and Jacobin cultural contributor and organizer, Leonard Pierce. Leonard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here and uh, an honor to be on the show. I'm very excited to talk about this this uh, topic that I've spent a lot of years uh, enjoying and talking about with other people. Yeah, truth be told, Leonard, I to, to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of uh, how, how I managed to snooker Leonard onto our little humble little show... I read your piece uh, back in 2020 in Jacobin called uh, Noir's Working Class Cinema. And it really just raised a, a whole lot of different notions. And I feel like you were able to kind of show the, the tip of the iceberg in that piece as far as your understanding of noir as a kind of a realist cinema that, you know, within the constraints of, or in American culture where you can only say things a certain way, in cinema and expect to kind of get away with it or at least get a production company to give you the money to make that uh it managed to depict the realities and the struggles and even like sometimes this kind of doomed heroism of working class people driven to the brink and not to put any more words in your mouth but probably for our listeners uh, we should just ask the expert what is noir how did this get made and what happened uh, sure, sure. I would be happy to ramble on about that. Film noir, as it is currently called, it was not called that when it came about. Uh, what we're generally talking about, uh, although, as I mentioned in the article, you ask a dozen people what film noir is, you'll get a dozen different answers. But the consensus view is that it was uh, what was at that time called crime dramas. They were usually fairly cheap. Uh, a lot of them were made either as B-movies or as movies for what were called Poverty Row Studios, which were the little studios that didn't have a lot of money. They filmed things quickly and cheaply. And they also, they tended to be about crime. They were whodunits. They were murder mysteries. They were what we now call detective stories. But often the criminal was the main character. He wasn't the protagonist necessarily, but they were often told from the criminal's point of view rather than from the uh, law enforcement, the detective's point of view, or, or what have you. Period-wise, we're generally talking about movies made right after World War II, 
to about 1960, which is, um, you know, and, a lot of to interrupt you, but like, that's, that's one of the fascinating qualities of this is that you, you have this period that's intensely culturally repressive in, in Hollywood, yeah. you already had established the Hays Code, which is kind of a, a privately made industry sensor designed to avoid any kind of state interference. But for that reason, it was even more censorious. And uh, these Poverty Rose studios you talk about are able to get all kinds of things or some things by the code in, in these funny little ways by virtue of the fact that uh, they're making cheap crime movies for... Mm. Uh, it, I'm reminded of that that scene in Trumbo where John Goodman is confronted and he's like, no one watches my movies who reads your stupid papers. I make yeah. garbage. the fuck out. It doesn't matter. I make garbage. Frank! Hey! You want to call me a panko in the papers? Do it. None of the people that go to my fucking movies can read no, it. Yeah, these are not... This, like, code guy with a baseball bat. Yeah, these were not movies that were expected to be big hits they didn't have a huge popular audience but they also were not at that time critically acclaimed critics tended to ignore them um and the way that the phrase we got the phrase film noir is that around the early 60s a lot of the new wave filmmakers in europe and france especially uh, many of whom had been critics beforehand a lot of the a lot of the new wave people uh agnes varda Godard, um, Truffaut had come out of Cahiers du Cinema and some of the other avant-garde film publications. And they were the ones who coined the film, the phrase film noir, black movies, essentially, which referred to the fact that they're generally pretty dark. They're very cynical about human nature. They follow in the footsteps of and were often written by pulp novelists who were kind of disreputable, um, you know, and talked about thematic issues that you didn't see in movies a lot back then and yeah as you say because of the Hayes code was very strict I mean this is the baby boom this was the Ozzie and Harriet years you know this was the period where American culture was very censorious <clears throat> it was also very tied up in the um Hollywood red scare right a lot of the, a lot of the noir writers got blacklisted or had been blacklisted um, a lot of the noir directors had come from Europe fleeing um, either Hitler at first, like Fritz Lang, um, or later on fleeing anti-communism, like a lot of the Italian and French directors. Hmm. And so you have this kind of perfect storm of politics, economics, and sexuality that let these movies get away with an awful lot in all of those fields. You had routine violations. You know, there were there, there were very strong limits on what you could show sexually in movies back then and a lot of noirs really pushed the on the envelope on that there was a general stricture on showing cops as being corrupt noir really subverted that as at every turn um you could never show the bad guys winning and while noir kind of stuck to that they lost because of bad luck or their own hubris or whatever they didn't mm -hmm. lose because they were bad people Right. And another important thing to remember, especially when you talk about the class connotations of film noir and why it was a working class cinema, that a lot of these actors were not A-list actors. They weren't the guys who made millions of dollars. They were guys who struggled to work and took whatever jobs they could get. Uh, a lot of the screenwriters, like I said, were blacklisted or couldn't get studio jobs, were very alcoholic. You know, there's a, a lot of them were from working class backgrounds. They didn't have any kind of connections. 
And most importantly, they were working in a context that emphasized sympathy with the downtrodden. You know, everything from the femmes fatale to the criminal protagonists, they weren't often shown as villainous people. They were often victims of circumstance. And that came from a perspective that a lot of the writers and creators were like, well, we don't really believe in this model of cops and government people are good and moral and criminals are bad and evil. They're just people who are stuck in different circumstances. You know, uh, one of the famous lines from The Asphalt Jungle, a, a rare noir done by an A-list director, John Huston, the financier who's bankrolling this heist is trying to explain to his wife why he's involved with these lowlifes. And he says, well, they're not that different from us. Their uh, crime is just a left-handed form of human in- endeavor. You know, it's just mm-hmm. that we're on this side and they're on that side, but we're not that different. And the movie, of course, bears out that fact that, you know, this is also another stylistic tone in a lot of noirs is that rich people are terrible. <laughs> you know, that the real villains are the bankers and the millionaires and, you know, not the not the poor, unlucky guy who just needs some money to get by. And they're also coming back, you know, a very important aspect of this too, and then I'll wrap it up, is that a lot of these movies featured protagonists who were coming home from World War II and they had made enormous sacrifices for their country and they got home and realized that they'd been sold a bill of goods by the government. All all the stuff they thought they were going to get when they came home, they weren't getting. You know, they some of them weren't, they didn't qualify for the GI Bill. They didn't get the VA benefits they thought they were going to get especially if they were people of color, they got left behind right. by, by a lot of the social safety net that the um, GI Bill was supposed to cover. And that made them very cynical because they had seen some pretty horrible things in the war. Yeah, so it's interesting how you have this back and forth across the Atlantic where these writers and directors, they come from Germany and France, they go all the way out to California they make these movies. They don't expect anyone to pay attention to them. And then in some cases, like 20 years later, or many more like 10, all of a sudden they're getting ridden up in the cahier. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that must have been uh, an interesting experience, uh, to yeah, say the least. These, a lot of these films were essentially forgotten by the time the French writers especially started writing about them. And I, I, as I understand, some of them became very hard to, to actually even find and view. Oh, yeah. There's some that are still out There's dozens of film noirs that you essentially cannot find anywhere. Like, they just, they exist in one print, like at the UCLA archives or something. So, feel free, we don't have to do a huge digression on this, but I'm just curious. How did the revivalists want, like, like, were there just French, were there just movie theaters in Paris just playing these old movies? Someone just had them and was like, okay, let's see if anybody wants to see these. Yeah, interestingly, a lot of them got dumped on the foreign market because America watched them. That makes sense. Yeah, so the the French would write about them. Um, They also were huge in Italy. You know, you saw the developments of neorealist cinema around the Mm. same time. The area between film noir and neorealism is very blurry. Yeah. And so they started writing about it and talking about them. And so like art house directors and artsy American critics would hear, would read about them in Kanye and go, Oh, we'd like to get a print of that. And they'd show them in New York. And that's where people uh, like Scorsese saw them. 
Oh, like yeah. Houses, you know, and they were like, wow, these are so stylistically impressive. You know, they're so interesting. And they really influenced them. And so by the time, you know, Outlaw Cinema came around in the 70s, mm-hmm. you had this generation of directors who had been very influenced by film noir. Interesting. In classic hard-boiled fashion. The, the people who made it through bad luck and circumstance never managed to pull off their caper. And instead, they just got dumped off in Europe where they became mm-hmm. legends. Afterwards. One thing I, I would love to if you would explore even more is you mentioned this in brief earlier, but noir, we talk about all these things that they managed to get past the censors. Uh, Noir has depictions of uh, sexuality. There's even depictions, although they're very like artfully done and pulled away at the last moment of um, gratuitous violence. That's not quite there. And like oral sex, that's not quite on screen and homosexuality that's implied in, in these subtle and not subtle ways. Uh, but one of the things that you managed to impress in your piece is the thing that strikes us looking at noir films, especially now, um, you know, when we're in like decade five or whatever of the blockbuster era, mm-hmm. is that they talk so much about class without even saying class, that this is a world in which the characters, the protagonists, the antagonists are all submerged and are their ambitions are all filtered through the fact that this is a world where anything can be bought and everyone gets sold and no one manages to get by except for the very rich. You even say at one point, still criminals were often the central characters. Their motivations were almost always the same. They were poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, again, this kind of goes back to Noir's origins in pulp fiction, you know, and the, a lot of the so-called black mask boys, which were these, this group of writers who wrote for detective pulp novels in the 30s mostly, they a lot of them went on to get Hollywood jobs. Some of them came from the ownership class. You know, Raymond Chandler famously was like a corporate guy uh, mm-hmm. before he became a writer, worked for an oil company for many years. And then you had, um, you had guys like uh, Dashiell Hammett, who had been, he had actually been a Pinkerton. Yeah. You know, he had been a Pinkerton private detective and had, seen all the union busting that they had done and he came from fairly modest circumstances and he quit the pinkertons because he couldn't handle you know seeing what they did you know on a daily basis you had others who had you know who came from the working class uh james jones wrote a lot of stuff for pulp novels and you know he's famously the guy who wrote from here to eternity and he was purely working class guy then you had um guys like jim thompson who was also very working class um, David Goodis, who wrote a lot of famous noirs and uh, wrote a few screenplays. He was a very wor- working class Jewish Philadelphia guy, never made any money. You know, even the pulps did not pay that well. Right. Nobody got into pulp writing pulp magazines for the money, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, like, a, a uh, National Hammond actually stands out for the money he made. And that was mainly on The Thin Man and, and the sequel. <laughs> mm. Sure. Yeah. So. You 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 had writers coming at this who were f- working class people, and these were poverty row studios that produced a lot of these movies, uh, like Republic, Allied Artists. You know, people who made their movies on the cheap. They didn't have these million dollar studio budgets. They didn't have your Xanax, you know, or your uh, Louis B. Myers saying, "I want this mo- thing turned into a, a movie." You know, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Republic was like probably the most prominent of the Property Row studios. And even they didn't yeah. have any money, you know. The so they made the movies yeah. on the cheap. They made them quickly. They made them with actors who were not generally A-list actors. They made them often on location because they couldn't afford to build sets. So they had a very street feel to them. <clears throat> but because you had a lot of these directors who had come from Europe and worked in the European art cinema mode, that's where the stylistic elements creeped in. And so you had these very dark and light contrasts in the cinematography. You had um, these very artfully constructed shots. Uh, You had interesting blocking. You had interesting ways of moving the camera that came from that European and to Mm -hmm. a lesser extent American tradition. John Alton was a big um, noir cinematographer and he was famous for working with Orson Welles. But he came from a working class background too. He had been, uh, you know, the son of a uh, ranch hand, I believe. Mm. And he just, he had worked with the WPA, which is where Wells met him. Mm. And so even that came out of a, you know, Roosevelt's alphabet, you know, system to try and give artists who were struggling a chance to make a living at what they did. And that's where Alton learned how to do photography and later became probably the signature film noir cinematographer. You talk about a, a couple of aspects of the, I guess, the content of film noir, in, in particular, how it stands out in this otherwise kind of stifling, airless period of repre- cultural repression in a lot of ways. And one of them was, like you said, how how police are depicted. You pointed out one film that I hadn't seen before uh, a couple of times called Shield for Murder, and I noticed this came out in 1954, so it was, it was a bit surprising to me because, I mean, contemporaneous events, the Julius and Arthur Rosenberg are being executed in the electric chair at the time. There's incredible repression of Smith Act prosecutions and support for police. You have Parker uh, taking the helm in Los Angeles, uh, turning it into an apartment that rather than just being violent and corrupt, just being extremely violent while not being mm. as corrupt. And Instead, what you have in Shield for Murder is uh, a caper where the the lead character is a cop who's just decides he's going to pull off a murder robbery. And there's so many little offhanded comments I noticed in that one after there's a, a officer involved shooting, quote unquote, I guess they would say today. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, those police, they become a secret society anytime someone shoots. Yeah. Eddie, I know it's a story. I also know these guys. They clam. Once a cop pulls the trigger, it's one big secret society. Yeah, the cops were not beloved in film noirs. Uh, You know, as I say, Raymond Chandler famously hated cops, just hated them. And you also, you know, this is a way of ducking the code because uh, the Hayes Code said you can never show cops as being anything but pure and clean and on the up and up. You know, you can't show cops being killed you can't show cops being crooked well film noir was like screw that we you know the people involved in them were way too familiar with the way cops behaved um david goodis you know to return to a previous example he had a lot of sexual kinks uh as we would call them today and he had gotten busted many many times often for the fact that he really liked to date black women which was not acceptable at that time for a white guy to be carrying on with black women and so he had gotten rolled by the cops time and time again yeah and so you have movies like shield for murder you have the sniper 
Um, there's another, you know, which is one where the cops are not necessarily crooked, but they're very, one of the cops essentially is constantly hitting on a victim of a crime. He's like, oh, you know, I know these ladies, they get uh, somebody peeps on them and they want a man to protect them. So he basically it's implied that he goes around finding women who are victims of sex crimes and romancing them by promising to protect them. Uh, you have um, the, 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 the Prowler in particular. Uh, with the Prowler. Yeah. You've also the got that one. It's just so viscerally creepy. So creepy. Yeah, he's <laughs> such a creep. Bog-eyed stalker. Yep. And um, you've got um, The Killing, a beautiful early Kubrick movie, um, where one of the participants in the heist is a crooked cop. Um, not just crooked, but also lazy, you know, and just really, you know, one of the early portrayals of a cop who just, you know, sits in his car and doesn't do anything, you know. And so that was one of the big ways it pushed on the boundaries of what was allowed under the Hays Code and what was acceptable in a broad way culturally is showing these guys who were, you know, businessmen who were crooked, cops who were crooked, accountants who were crooked, guys who were just like, portrayed to us all the time bankers who were crooked as being paragons of society who are really very base and awful people who are way worse than the petty criminals who are just trying to rip somebody off for money you know the villain is always the worst villains are always the most powerful people in society yeah so uh, feel free to on on this one because i'm not sure how it's just another kind of contextual question I had, which is in the kind of A movies of the time, like the headline movies, what were the depictions of crime like in those? Did they have sort of uh, crime dramas higher up on the scale that that showed oh. police as good guys or what have you? Or, sure, sure. Yeah. there were plenty of A-list crime movies. People like a crime story, you know? Sure. But in mainstream stories, which I think this is, the case today, certainly, we've kind of gone backwards in the sense the the law enforcement people were the heroes, the cops mm -hmm. were the protagonists, the detectives were the protagonists, FBI guys were the heroes, mm -hmm. um, military guys, higher up, higher ranking military guys were the heroes. They always, they're always clean. Uh, mm -hmm. They're never on the take. The, the story is always from their point of view. Mm -hmm. They always get the girl. Oh, yeah. They never come to a bad end. And in noir, the villains always come to a bad end. Right. So it's often about them, the criminal. And, you know, the, the good guys didn't drink. They didn't curse. They didn't carry on with women. If there were villains, they were always shown as just utterly despicable. They didn't have any redeeming moral qualities or sympathetic aspects. Mm. And their women were very pure and, you know, decent and kind and you know they didn't sleep around and they mm. didn't you know that was a big thing in noir is like there's noir from a feminist standpoint is a little iffy because it was written largely but not exclusively by men but the idea of the femme fatale which is baked into the noir model it took a big hit in the 60s and 70s when feminist film criticism started because feminist film critics pointed out, and they're not entirely wrong, that these were movies in which women very strongly used their sexuality as a weapon against men. But I feel like that sort of ignores the fact that 
the women, at least in film noirs, a lot of them were given agency. They at least were right. something other than a girlfriend. They yeah. wanted something. You know, right. you look at a movie like uh, another one of my all-time favorite noirs, uh, Gun Crazy, hmm. from 1950, which is about this uh, guy who grows up as a crack shot, and he goes in the army and becomes, you know, this really badass killer because he's such a good shot. But he doesn't like shooting. He's kind of a timid, weaselly guy. And he comes back to his hometown. And in a traveling carnival show, he meets this woman who is the crack shot. She's the Annie Oakley type in the show. She's a trick shooter. And the entire sexual tension between these two is sublimated through the act of shooting in the movie. Because they can't come screwing, right? So they have to show him shooting. And he is just, oh, this movie is so intensely horny, you know. <laughs> he is obviously just on fire. You know, they're just so hot for each other. And the sexuality in it all comes from the fact that she works in a carnival. She's had a bad life. Hmm. has been abused and shit on by a wide variety of every man she's ever met. And she meets him, this other guy who can shoot. And essentially, she says, let's become bank robbers. And he goes along with it because he's really hot for her, but she wants to do it because she's been, you know, she's working abused. as a carny. She wants to get she's out been constantly abused by every man who's ever, and she like makes it explicit. She's like, she says, there's a line that says, I've been kicked down my whole life and it's about time for me to start kicking back. Mm. So does anybody watch any of those old timey, uh, you know, uh, a level boring movies that you're talking about do any of those pass the test of time i think so i mean there's some of them um westerns i guess are basically but yeah yeah where this gets to be like these other movies of the time are like basically like the predecessors to like the jack webb like right or ncis yeah Yeah, Mm well same (laughs) yeah right i mean people again always have a taste for crime dramas some of the better ones have held up um, where you really get a gray area, I think, is in detective stories. Hmm. A lot of people will argue that detective stories are not film noir because the protagonist is a, he's not necessarily a law enforcement agent, but he's on the side of the law. Mm-hmm. Frederick Jameson, the Marxist uh, culture critic, wrote an amazing book about um, Raymond Chandler. Hmm. And in it, he makes the very interesting argument that a detective is not just not a law enforcement agent even though he's kind of on the side of the law but that the reason a lot of these writers picked detectives as their protagonists is because they exist in both worlds if you're a cop you have to obey the law if you're a private detective you can kind of bend the law and private detectives can go to a rich person's house but they can also hang around with low lowlifes. They know people who are law enforcement agents, but they also know people who are criminals. They exist in almost every milieu of society. They cross class boundaries. And they can have an agenda that's entirely their own. Or right. That's very murky. Yeah. That so he argued that a lot of detective novels are picaresques, you know, the form of story where this character just travels amongst society and sees all kinds of amazing things and picaresques in the 19th century were about, oh, this guy's hanging out with farmers. Now he's hanging out with aristocrats, you know, mm-hmm. like a, like Candide, for example, is a great example of a picaresque. 
It's just one character kind of traveling through all strata of society. And Jameson argues that detective novels reify that and they allow us to see aspects of society that we wouldn't ordinarily see depicted alongside other ones. And usually in the picaresque, while a lot happens, you can't really change the social order. That's right. And if there's one thing that is a constant about noir, it is fatalistic. That is one of its immutable qualities. Nobody comes out on top. Nobody wins. Everybody is doomed, you know, no matter how, uh, you know, as they say in uh, one of the all-time classic noirs, Detour from 1945, a pure poverty row picture made for about 500 bucks over a week's time. The protagonist says, no matter which way you turn, fate will stick out a foot to trip you up. And that's the essence of noir right there is like, nobody's getting out of here alive. You know, everybody's going to start out right where they end up right where they started out. And that fatalism is also a very strong quality of the picaresque. It's like, this is the way the world is. And you can push against it. You can see as much of it as you can see, but you're never essentially going to leave your station. Yeah, I mean, James Elroy is, is fond of, of summarizing film noir as saying it's it's the entire film trying to tell you you're fucked. Yep. <laughs> One thing you actually bring up, and not as a way of contrast, but as a as kind of parallel, and we've mentioned already a little bit this conversation, is the kind of parallel genre of Italian neorealism which addressed a lot of these, but in a high, much more highly and overtly politicized mode. Could you talk about that a little bit for us? So Italian neorealism, which is another term that rose years after people had stopped making that kind of movie. It started around the same time, right around the end of World War II. In fact, uh, one of the essential neorealist films is called Rome Open City. And it was done by uh, Rossellini right as the... Germans had left Rome. Like he was filming it when it was still occupied by the Nazis. And Rome Open City refers to the fact that Rome became kind of a free city after the Germans left and the Americans started coming in. But what happened in this period, which is again roughly the end of the war to the end of the 1950s, is there was a big reckoning in Italian society between the people who had collaborated with Mussolini and his fascists and the people who had not. There was an enormous amount of poverty because the Nazis essentially destroyed the city. They stole everything. Allied bombing wrecked a lot of their infrastructure. So even people who previously had money had nothing. You know, some of the neorealist films like Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves, these are depressing movies. <laughs> they are about really poor people who are on the verge of death, like they're going to die from being poor. And the third thing is that there was because of the allied occupation after the Nazis were driven out. But the fact that Italy did not yet have a stable form of government, there was an enormous amount of crime and corruption. And so all these things fed into what these guys wanted to make movies about. And again, a lot of them had come from a very working class background. A lot of them were communists uh, or were communist sympathetic. And so they wanted to make movies about these ordinary people who were struggling. And sometimes they were doing it through crime. Uh, so there are film, there are neorealist films that are also, I would argue, film noirs. You know, they're crime films like um, Bitter Rice. 
Uh, and then there are others that are not really about crime. They're just about poverty and the choices that poor people have to make. But they shared that quality of like people made them on the cheap. They were often made with non-professional actors. They had very distinctive cinematography, often using that same uh, black and white, shadowy, you know, play with light, um, often using the same interesting camera angles. Um, you know, uh, very stylistic qualities were very similar to film noir. And their concerns were very similar to film noir to the extent of almost crossing over into that field. And then a lot of them, after the war uh, ended, you know, and you had this huge struggle between the communists and the government that the American government preferred, you know, during the, the years of lead in the 60s and 70s, the Americans were popping, propping up a very capitalist form of government because the Italian Communist Party was very strong at that point. So a lot of them went on to make what were called Cito Violencia movies, named after a, weirdly enough, a Charles Bronson movie, um, that were kind of more modern, you know, they were what would later be called neo-noirs. You know, they were they were less explicitly about poverty, but more explicitly about crime. And they were mostly in color, but they had a lot of the same concerns. And so a lot of the actors who worked in Italy at that time, including American actors like um, Bronson and Rod Steiger, came over to the United States and made film noirs and some of the successors to film noir. So it was very kind of incestuous scene. Much like the French New Wave. I'm almost reluctant to, to take us to this period where, where film noir declined. So uh, rather than, than forcing us there so quickly, what are your favorites and why? We, we mentioned the, the big combo uh, before Ooh. we went on air here, which is a, a, a fascinating movie, among other things, because it has uh, two very clearly gay hitmen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the big combo is long been a favorite of mine. One of my entrees into writing about film was a long vanished website, which uh, who knows if the folks who did it are still around, but there was a film criticism site called The Big Combo uh, that I used to read a lot of. And, uh, you know, they did a lot of really insightful, interesting criticism, but this is a, this is like a 90s, early 2000s film site. So it's long gone. But yeah, The Big Combo just has so much going for it. It's got this it's directed by Joseph H. Lewis, who also directed Gun Crazy, another one of my all-time favorite noirs. Its screenwriter is one of the best screenwriters of, of noir. You know, he did a lot of other really good noirs. It's got a terrific cast. The two main characters are a cop played by Cornell Wilde, who is a medium star at the time. And the antagonist is a, a guy who bankrolls mob operations, essentially. And it's just it's so sexualized and it's so violent and it's so like they get away with so much in it that it's really kind of everything comes together in it. And the story is very hypnotic. It's got a lot of twists and turns. It's got a lot of scenes that are very violent, but the violence is implied rather than utterly gory because you couldn't really do that. Uh, so there's a film, like there's a scene where uh, Mr. Brown, the villain, tortures the cop by making him drink shaving uh, shaving uh, lotion. Oh, yeah, like it's like, liquid. A, like a tonic, right? Or something like yeah. That. Mm. And his assistant, like his flunky, wears a hearing aid and he's constantly yelling right into the hearing aid like to to just brutalize him into knowing who's in charge. Uh, there's, there's a great opening scene where he has this uh, 
Mr. Brown has this uh, boxer who's on the tape that he hired to throw the match. And he goes to visit him. And Mr. Uh, Brown, for our listeners, is the uh, big villain with all said flunkies. Yes. Mr. Brown is one of the great villains of all film noir, in in my opinion. Um, but he goes to this guy who's, you know, Mr. Brown is a little dude, you know. <laughs> He's not a big hulking villain. And he just goes to this boxer and slaps him around right after the match. And he says, you know, you can't win. I'm never going to bet on you again because you're not, basically you're not bloodthirsty enough. You don't want it bad enough. He's like, when you are, you know, he says, when you're in the ring, you shake your opponent's hand. You want to beat the shit out of this guy and you're going to shake his hand. You kill him. You think about him as somebody that you want to murder. And that's the only way you should ever relate to him. And he says, you know, you think that you're going to make it someday, but look at me, you know, I've got this woman, I've got all these jewels. I've got all this money. I've got these guys who will do anything for me. And he has this great line. He says, first is first and second is nobody. And he's just so ruthless. And you're just like, how does this guy command people like that? And it's because he's so ruthless. And he's such a perfect villain. And the hero is corrupted because he is in love with Brown's mistress. So he's very compromised by that. He can't really go after him as much as he wants to. And yeah, Brown has these two flunkies who they live together. They sleep in the same bed. And there's a scene where they're feeding each other salami. <laughs> mm. It's not really subtle, you know, but. I mean, so if, if salami, if, if liking salami makes you gay, consider me Thomas. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's another great scene. It's one of my favorite scenes because he actually got pulled in front of the, you know, the Hollywood blacklist hearings to discuss it. Because you couldn't show it. Congress is literally putting you under oath and saying, look, we need to talk about this scene in your movie. Yeah. As as if there are a bunch of like button down guys like watching a stack film. Yeah, it's like Estes Kefauver, you know, is asking about the scene. So there's a scene where where you're seeing him kind of like his mistress, who there's a very distinct class element to the relationship between Mr. Brown and his mistress, because she's portrayed as being very upper crust. She has this mid-Atlantic accent. She comes from a good family. She was once a star piano prodigy. And now she's just this broken down drug addict who is so unable to get herself together enough to leave this sleaze bag she's dating that she tries to kill herself. And he's trying to get her back and assure her, you know, I got you, baby. And it's no coincidence that he seduces her in the room where he keeps all his money. You know, that's a big signal to the audience, you know, why she's sticking around. And so he starts, he comes up behind her and she's wearing this um, bare-shouldered dress. He kisses her on the neck, he kisses her on the shoulder, and then he just goes down out of camera and you don't see him anymore. And suddenly she gets this look of ecstasy on her face. Now, everybody in a modern movie would know exactly what is happening here. But in those days, you couldn't show that. And so they pulled him before Congress and they said, what exactly is happening here? And Lewis was a really funny guy. And he gives them all these really smart ass answers. Like he says, well, you're under oath. You need to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. And they're literally (laughs) saying you're under oath. You have to tell us what's going on here, you know? And he says, look, my business as a director is what happens when the actors are on screen. What happens when they go off screen is not my business. (laughs) 
And he just like stonewalls them about this because he will not come out and say what's going on, even though everyone in that room knew what was going on, you know. And so that's one of the ways they, you know, that's an example of how they push back against this stuff in film noirs. But he didn't get punished, you know, he just basically stonewalled them so bad, you know, and it's got all these elements to it. It's got incredible cinematography. I actually think it is by, um, I, I need to check myself here, but I believe the cinematography is by John Alton. It is by John Alton, the guy who worked with Orson Welles, you know, it's just, it has so many great elements to it. So it's, it's one of my favorites. Gun Crazy is one of my favorites for very similar reasons. It's also got terrific performances by a couple of actors who didn't really do a lot more, including Peggy Cummins, who's the female lead, who plays Annie Laurie Starr, the sharpshooter at the carnival. And, um, John Dahl, who is kind of a minor actor from that period, and he's very good at playing kind of a lanky, nebbishy, no account. Uh, it's also got almost every good film noir has an amazing visual element to it. And in this one... Yes. In Gun Crazy, there's a bank robbery where their getaway, when they rob the bank, uh, she's in the car and he jumps into the car. And they do, there's a scene where they drive up to the bank, he runs in and robs it, runs out, and they get away. And it's all done in one continuous shot. Hmm. And all the dialogue is improvised uh, because the director was like, just have fun with it, you know, basically like <laughs> say what you think your characters would say in the scene. And it's just electrifying. There's almost a sense in which when you describe the production of these films in which they almost seem like they are desperate film noir capers in and of themselves. Yep. <laughs> you have these like poor down on their luck actors, directors, writers who are blacklisted and having to use doubles and, and fake names and shit like that. And they have one shot. Yep. <laughs> most of the time. And they have, they have nothing to lose. Like a lot yeah. of desperate characters are like, well, I might as well do this. Nobody cares. You know, it's not like I maybe I'll get in trouble, but my career sucks anyway. So I might as well try something different, you know. Um, Congress going to put me in prison? Yeah, right. So, put, um, put me in prison for showing the Love Act? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Asphalt Jungle, which I think is mm. a near perfect heist film. Uh, the Killing, uh, that early Kubrick that I think is really amazing. Uh, Detour, the 1945 film that's just cheap as anything, but just so every every moment of it is so suspenseful and tense. The the lead character is the world's biggest sad sack. You know, like you're almost rooting for him to get shit on more because he's such a he'll just take it. You know, he's just a real chump. And um, Phil Noir is not kind to the chumps of this world. You know, mm. there's some that are really there's one called um, Hell's Half Acre which is really interesting because it was filmed on location in Hawaii, uh, along with some really amazing location shots and a pretty strong narrative. You get a lot of not so great depictions of Asian people, but also some elements of anti-imperialism. There's a common thread in the movie that the Hawaiians hate the white people who live there. You know, they wish they were gone. Film noir tackles a lot of racial issues that did not get talked about much back then. There, There's a development in the killing the kubrick movie which even talking about it would constitute a spoiler but it's one of the few elements in that period of film noir that was racialized there's a one of the characters has an encounter with a black guy and it uh, his reaction to it ends up uh, being 
the wrong thing to do. <laughs> and he pays the price for it. Figured he couldn't lose. I put it all on his nose. He lost by a nose. Well, drink your coffee, honey, before it gets cold. The way I figure, my luck's just got to turn. One of these days, I'll make a real killing, and then I'm going to hit for home. First thing I do when I get there, I take a bath in the creek and get the city dirt off me. There's also some, um, I think it would be, it would be remiss of me not to mention this uh, because of, it's something that's important to the role of women in film noir. There's an actress named Ida Lupino, you may know. She was British, but she lived in America a lot of her career. She later ended up doing a lot of American tele television. She was in Colombo a lot, but she was one of the few women in noir films who went on to have creative control in films. And she actually is the only woman who ever directed a classic era noir film called The Hitchhiker. And it's um, based on a true story about these two hunters who are driving home from a hunting trip and they pick up a hitchhiker and he turns out to be an escaped serial killer. For most noirs were not about serial killers. Uh, I would make the argument that the serial killer genre displaced film noir. That's why a lot of critics place Psycho as kind of the death knell the death knell of film noir, but she I, was I right feel about that it. Is entirely in keeping with like what's become an ongoing thesis of this show that psychologically heavy serial killer, heavy psycho killer, heavy true crime has displaced a whole range of thinkings about crime from 100% right. Yeah. I'm with you on that totally. Yeah. The, the modality of portraying criminals has almost entirely switched from a class-based one to a psychology-based one. Mm -hmm. You know, that these people are just born flawed and they, they're evil inherently and they do things because they're insane, you know, or, and... Or a trauma, a trauma version of the same thing, sure. right? That's kind of the gentler version. They were mm -hmm. okay, then they had a trauma, and now uh, they're messed up and doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of film noirs that kind of attempt to address psychology and things like that but they're generally not the best ones they're more like interesting examples you know like oh here's a movie where the criminal goes to see a psychologist you know or a psychiatrist yeah. um the two, but anyway, the two I things you know made this great movie called the hitchhiker and it's about these guys who pick up a escaped psychopath you know 
And it's kind of a bottle episode sort of movie. It all takes place in their car. You know, it's very tight, super suspenseful, great performances. Uh, The villain, who is just played as this terrifying psychopath, is the guy who played, I don't know if you were you were all familiar with the old Perry Mason TV show. A little. Uh, the, the guy who played Berger, the prosecutor who Perry Mason always beat in court, uh-huh. was the villain in that movie. Oh, amazing. Yeah. If you if you watch a lot of 50s, 60s, and early 70s TV, you see millions of people from film noirs. Yeah, what, what experts know is that much like Munch, uh, there's actually a continuity in the prosecutor from Perry Mason oh, wow. is the serial killer. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things you have talked about before, Leonard, is the depictions of violence in film noir, and in particular how to say without saying in so many ways the horrors of war that you couldn't talk about that people came back from to a society where that it did not remotely reflect or or comment on that. It was just something like stuffed down, but it's still there. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that film noir was very good at depicting sexuality without really depicting it, talking about corruption without really talking about it, film noirs were made from the end of World War II through the Korean War and right up until we started getting involved in Vietnam. So a very common thread in them is the experience that, especially working class guys, guys who were grunts, you know, they weren't officers. They came back from the war and they were fucked up. You know, they had PTSD and nobody really knew what that was back then, or they didn't talk about it that much. You know, it was considered kind of unmanly to talk about the fact that being in the war had given you neuroses. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everyone who came back from that war knew somebody who had shell shock or had PTSD or had seen a lot of people around them die, you know, And because there wasn't really a mental health infrastructure in the country back then, it often would get pretty ugly. And so you've got movies like The Sniper, uh, where the antagonist is a Korean War veteran who just started shooting people from a distance because that's what he had been trained to do, you know. And you have movies like, um, there's a really good one called Five Against the House, which is directed by Phil Carlson, one of the real unsung heroes of film noir. And it's about these college kids who got drafted to go to uh, Korea when they were still in college. And when they came back, they go back to college. But, you know, they've got an extra five years on the clock. So they're 28-year-old guys hanging around with 22-year-old sophomores, you know. Mm. Friends, they, they don't feel like they fit in, you know. And one of them's kind of this clever dick sort of, you know, oh, I'm a smart guy. I'm going to figure out the score. And they all go to a casino for some, you know, for a vacation. And one of them figures out how the casino's money shifting, you know, how they get the money from the floor to the safes is through this kind of conveyor belt system, which is based on a real thing. And he's like, I bet I could figure out how to steal that money. And he's not really serious about it. He's just like, look at how smart I am. Mm-hmm. But the other guys are like, oh, why don't we try it? And one of the guys is this guy who's one of the guys is very, he's a hothead. You know, that's what they used to say about anybody who was really essentially hair trigger violent. Oh, that guy's a real hothead. But he clearly had PTSD. Like, he was angry all the time. He got triggered by loud sounds. He was nervous all the time. Like, the girl he was dating couldn't relax around him because he was like likely to, like, jump behind a bench or something at any time. 
And he also like would get into fights over nothing, like no provocations. And now we would see that guy, even back then, people saw him like, oh yeah, that guy's got shell shot. Mm-hmm. You know, he must have seen some shit in the war. But they couldn't really say that because it was considered unseemly to talk about veterans having suffered mental health crises because of the war. And so they do it through all these uses of euphemism, just like there's another another great one we were talking about is uh, called Underworld USA by Sam Fuller, where this kid sees his, his father is like a lowlife bookie and he gets in trouble with a mob and the son sees him get beaten to death by some mob goons. And that really traumatizes him. And we see it, but we don't really see it. All we see is the shadow of it happening. And, you know, it's kind of that kind of shadow play, both literally and metaphorically, is how film noir got away with a lot of things. They, they use so many different ways of depicting and even drawing out the like horror and the inability to get away as an observer or a victim or like a potential victim without actually showing the violence itself. And th- this isn't like an apology for like, oh, we, you know what? did better under a more repressive time. So we need to bring repressive times back so people can transgress. Uh, but I feel like your, and this is in keeping with you, kind of your criticism, Leonard, is that these were directors who were also trying to find every way they could to depict the everyday struggles and violence and corruption that they saw in the world. Yeah, it was a very, art at that time was extremely sanitized and they had things they wanted to talk about and they were going to talk about them. And if they had to skirt around these rules and moral codes and everything, they were going to do it. And I mean, it's certainly no, you know, it's no secret that a lot of great art, uh, you know, emerges out of repression But it was just, you know, like I said, it was such a perfect storm of sexual, racial, economic, political repression all coming together to really make for this very neat, clean kind of art. And these were people who, for whatever reason, were not having it. They were not going to make those kind of pictures. You know, the result, I don't think it's a surprise that it became so popular in Europe Because you're looking at societies in France, in the UK, uh, which had its own noir noir tradition, in Italy, um, and then later and to a lesser extent in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, when it kind of leaked behind the uh, the Iron Curtain, that these were countries that suffered far more in World War II than America did, and who had to cope with the wreckage that the war left their society in in a way that America did not. Uh, You know, that they were living in cities that had to be rebuilt. You know, that they were dealing with corruption and violence that were not just economic, but political in nature, you know. Uh, And I shouldn't leave Japan out of this either. There was a lot of great Japanese noirs and they were in the same situation. You know, a lot of these movies were made when Japan was still occupied by the Allies. And, you know, they were making crime films about crimes that were being invented at that time. Stuff like the black market and smuggling and like providing women to the Allies, you know, like prostitution and things like. And so, you know, they were talking about this in film because they were living in a society where the Americans and the pro-American elements of the Japanese society would not let them talk about it openly. 
So they resorted to fiction as like, well, we all know what's going on. Here's what's going on. But I can't talk about this in a news story. So here it is in a movie. So interestingly, to go from the pessimistic world of noir to what followed it, you you touch a little bit in your piece and uh, in our conversation here about the decline of noir. And there's really a, a shift, as you said, from depicting people as being motivated by money or like in the movie we just talked about, Shield to Murder. Shield for murder. Shield for murder. Sorry. Like his chief aspiration is buying this like chintzy looking little model home. Yeah. Uh, the main character. And that's what, that's why he's willing to kill multiple people. Yeah. Uh, but we move from that to a depiction of murky psychologically related crime, almost like on a, frankly, like you get the the sense of the intonation of like this is a this is more of a nuanced and serious view of what of mm. what motivates these people, which is funny because it's usually like one on one straight out of the DSM, right? It's yeah. not like film yeah. noir lacked for insight into what actually motivates people. It just didn't make it as like the center of the plot or a morality mm. play. Right, yeah. So why did we have this shift in the kind of the cinematic depiction of crime and violence from film noir, at, at least at the bottom end, to what followed in the, in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I think there's, there's no easy single answer. I think it was a concatenation of a lot of things that happened both in America and in Hollywood at the time. The 60s were obviously a more optimistic era in a lot of ways you know we thought oh we're we understand psychology now we we're a more liberal permissive society we can freudianism can be talked about uh, we have all these miracle drugs now you know the future is bright you know the the human potential movement was arising that said you know we can perfect humanity and so the i mean film noir is if nothing again if, if it's nothing else it's fatalistic it's like this is the world, the way the world is, and it's doomed, and you just got to figure out some way to ride the wave. And the 60s didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear, like, we were, we're headed for a time of peace and prosperity and happiness for everyone and racial harmony and equality. A lot of it also, there's there were economic factors. The Poverty Row studios kind of disappeared. They mm. couldn't make it. You know, they could not compete with the big studios. And more importantly, the big studios started taking chances, especially mm. in the 70s late 60s and early 70s, you saw the rise of a lot of, you know, the maverick directors, the directors who were like taking chances and doing really artsy stuff. And the studios, much like the music studios, you know, music business in the late 60s and early 70s were like, I don't know what the kids like. Let's just put this out there and see if they like it. You know, the movie studios were doing the same thing. They were like, I don't know, like, sure, let's do Easy Rider, you know, let's see what, see what the kids think of that, you know. So... You didn't really get, you know, directors could go to a studio with a pretty wild idea and get it accepted, you know, mm -hmm. and American morals were shifting. So they were willing to see more explicit sexuality, more graphic violence, more open psychology, more direct treatment of, you know, class and economic issues. And also, you know, the generation of creators that made noir were aging out of the business. Some of them died. Uh, a lot of the actors from that period were getting old. Others had become too respectable. And then some of them had just completely dropped out. Sterling Hayden was the guy who appeared in a ton of noir movies. He started out doing Westerns and kind of mainstream movies, but, and he was, you know, very big, handsome 
guy and they, they used to call him the, the Swedish golden god because he was so handsome. Mm. But he didn't like doing the kind of movies they cast him and he started looking for interesting work. And he did a lot of film noir. And then at a certain point, he got fed up with the whole Hollywood system, even though he had made a lot of movies and made a lot of money. And he wrote this really amazing autobiography, which I wouldn't necessarily call Marxist, but he basically said, what does a person need in life more than a place to live, interesting work, and a grave, you know, basically. And he had fought on in World War II he did a lot of anti-fascist work and he actually, when he was in the army, he smuggled weapons to Tito's partisans. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And he led this amazing, interesting life. But at a certain point, he just said, yeah, I made enough money. I don't want to do this anymore. And he just quit. He bought a boat and he sailed to the South Pacific and he's like, I'm done. I'm done with society now. And he eventually came back because he wanted to see his kids again. So he made a big comeback, which you may know, uh, he played the crooked cop in The Godfather. Oh. Yeah. He was also in Doctor... Was he also in Doctor Strangelove? He was also... That was the last big yes. movie he made before he quit and fucked off yeah. in the Pacific. And oh, then wow. The Godfather was the first movie that he did as a comeback. But in the subsequent... 10 years he was just nowhere he was one of those guys i'll just, like, I'll just enjoy my veal cutlet yeah he just kind of dropped out Sorry. and uh but all, yeah all he, you need is a house interesting work and a grave is the is the most uh like hard-boiled way of, of putting like a baseline socialist ideal into writing yeah, yeah um if you can find it you may be able to find a copy of it online but he wrote this book called um it was named after his boat <laughs> um wanderer ah. and it was basically his like theory of life he's like you know people should do work that interests them and is productive and we've gotten wrapped up in this capitalist idea of like i have to have a huge house and i have to have uh, 10 cars and stuff and like it was written in 62 or 63 and back then movie stars did not talk like that you know yeah no, it's, it's very like proto beat though Mm-hmm. I guess just beat at that time. Yeah, yeah. So so it's it's interesting. You know, I think about crime movies now, and obviously you have your your big cop blockbusters. You do have movies that, that take the criminal perspective more, but like you said in your article, a lot of them they're not as kind of gritty, they're not as uh they're they're always higher stakes. What I'm thinking of is like the films of Michael Mann where these criminals are often already basically rich. Like, you kind of have to have a lot of money to do the types of crime that they're doing in Heat uh, or Thief or Black Hat because they're expensive. Despite its working-class character and tone, I mean, in Thief, he's a he owns a car dealership. Right, you know? yeah. He yeah. could just stop doing crimes and right. make money off of his car dealership. And, and I, I, you know, interest declared, I love Michael Mann. He's he's probably my favorite director. But but yeah, it, it I think I don't think in his mind it's a contradiction to have that character also stand in. I mean, maybe he would say it was for the working class, but almost more the sort of artisanal, right? He's he's the individual. Mm-hmm. And this is this is true also in his non-crime movies like Last of Mohicans, right? It's yep. the it's the individual operator versus the combine. Right. But the the other thing that I think of is the rise of kind of mafia movies as like canonical American cinema. Mm-hmm. And 
from what I, you know, I know more of the novels than I do the movies, but having read a fair number of hard-boiled detective fiction, they're usually, if there's criminals that are sympathetic, it's usually not the mobs. It's usually due to a combination of A, they're squeezing the little guy, and B, there's often leftover ethnic prejudice, especially, unfortunately, from Chandler, um, you know, who are these grease balls to shake us down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's so funny, you know, Coppola and Scorsese and whoever putting all of this effort into trying to say something real about the American experience with their mob movies. And then a little while down, you know, just a matter of decades down the line, their movies are interpreted by audiences as, man, isn't it fun to hang out with your friends when they're all criminals? Yeah, you get to hang out with your buddies. You have a lot of money. You're eating pork all day. No one messes with you. No one tells you what to do. You know, they, they become these kind of dad movies in the imagine in the American imagination, which I guess is my very long-winded way of saying there's a certain extent to which you need the audience, right? Not just the creators, not just the ideologies or the artistic influences. You also, if you have all that and you don't have an audience that's willing to, like, take on board what you're saying, where are you? Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, I am a big advocate of reader response theory that, you know, the reader creates the art as much as the author does. And, you know, I I wrote a, uh, I may have mentioned I wrote a book called If You Like the Sopranos. Uh, Mm. My editor was very kind to let me use what was supposed to be a book about like, hey, if you like the Sopranos, here's some other shows you can watch to instead write a book that is basically like the history of crime film in America. Mm. And so I talk about this a lot. You pulled up a good caper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do talk a lot about what the difference between a noir crime drama and a mob crime drama is. Some of the essential qualities of the modern mob movie, you know, the immigrant experience, the way that it organized crime as opposed to individual crime kind of mirrors capitalism, right? You know, these yeah. guys are capitalists. They're they they don't hate the system. They love the system. They just yeah. want to make money outside of it, you know. And they they become they organization like men in a sense. Yeah. And so that's all very valid. And, you know, and I think another thing about modern crime films is that they're very technologized. Mm. You know, like if you if you watch a caper movie from the noir period and it's not just because of the period in which they're set, it's that we have a whole different expectation of what a criminal should be now. Like, Mm -hmm. so, for instance, if you watch a heist movie from the noir period, like Killing or the, The Asphalt Jungle or even the original Ocean's Eleven, with Frank Sinatra and his buddies, which is not a great movie, (laughs) but, you know, or um, to use a British example that I'm really fond of, The League of Gentlemen. Mm, Or Rafifi. Uh, Rafifi, absolutely. Or um, the the capers are pulled off by this sort of combination of the guys running it being smart, um, having some degree of inside information, Mm -hmm. and having just the right people on their team to do specific jobs. Mm -hmm. It's very much more like you were talking about professionalized, like artisanal. Yeah. And now it's like, look at the modern Ocean's Eleven movies. Those guys have the most cutting edge technology. Right. They're already all rich. Yeah. Way more so than the Michael Mann characters. Yeah. And, you know, they're basically pulling off like a, they're competing with the casinos. They're not robbing them. They're just like, oh, I have a, a neat trick I could figure out to rob this casino. And 
you know, I find that kind of unsatisfying because it's not a story about people anymore. It's a story about things, you know, Mm -hmm. they're using these things to steal these things. And the cops are using these things to try and interfere with the other things. And all the human interest is kind of sidelined to me. You know, that's, Mm. that's something that, and, and as you know, we've talked about the stakes are always so high, you know, you don't have a situation where like in shield for murder, the guy just wanted to buy a little prefab cottage or in um, (laughs) the asphalt jungle, which was also, that was a Sterling Hayden film, his character, who's the goon, you know, he's the muscle. He wanted to buy back his parents' horse farm. Mm. You know, he they lost it to the tax man. And so he's like, I just want my farm back that I grew up on. You know, and what does what is, what is Danny Ocean want? He wants to pull off a $250 million heist. Right. You know? that's, and get his wife that's back. so inhuman to me, you know. Uh, and get his wife Julia Roberts to like him again, yeah. Uh, but uh, or mainly by by proving that the hu- that her that Andy Garcia, her husband's a jerk, which you wouldn't think it would follow that he would then fall back in love with George Clooney. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, that's one of the good things I like about Fargo. Is right, exact. Marge Gunderson says at the very end, all for a little bit of money, mm-hmm. you know. So, so as a fun personal anecdote, I always thought it was very weird that people thought Marge Gunderson was so admirable and sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, boy, I don't know if that's, you know, and again, I'm a reader response theory guy. I don't believe that the word of the creator is the word of God. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I wonder if the Coen brothers believe that Marge is, if they perceive her the way I think audiences perceive her. And to me, that line showed that she kind of lacked a certain degree of empathy Mm. because she didn't understand how much that money meant to them right it have been a little bit of money for her and her yeah. suburban existence yeah. but for them, these guys it was life and death they literally killed right. people over it right and i wrote an article i wrote an uh for the late lamented nerve.com film uh section i wrote they used to do this head-to-head thing where they would have two critics take contrary views of a movie and uh, I, I argue with with this guy who held up the standard perception of Marge, and I said I don't think that's the case. I don't think that I don't think that they hate Marge, but I think that they think she's weird, mm. uh, and I don't think that they necessarily want us to emphasize her. Oh my God! Hold on, here's a car alarm going off. Outside. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that happens to us all the time. Yeah, I, I've had two cop sirens. Oh yeah, yeah. So many years later, I came across this interview that the Coen Brothers did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and they basically came right out and said, "Yeah, we did, we were baffled by the way that people ah. reacted to Marge. Ah. We meant for Steve Buscemi to be the character that everybody identified with as this outsider who was dropped into a a milieu in which everybody seemed completely crazy to him." Huh. Why are these people all behaving with such kind of faux nicety? Why why yeah. do they seem so abnormal to me to me? Uh. And so they were like, we didn't get why people like Marge that much. We thought she was kind of a simpleton, you know. And yeah. uh, everybody should have been paying attention to Buscemi's perspective because he was the only one in the movie kind of acting normally. <laughs> ah, amazing. Because yeah. they, Steve Buscemi's a city man. He's a little energy, and they're all fucking hasty moves. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's as good a lead in as as any as to what you think of these kind of neo noir 
for noir revival flicks. And I don't mean the kinds that just revive the aesthetics of it, because um, I think that probably goes in into one bucket. There's a whole lot of people who are just fascinated with the aesthetics of noir, literally like fedoras, black and white film, uh, but less mm-hmm. like the the gritty moral depiction. And so I was wondering your thoughts on some of these neo-noir films. I have my own favorite with Blood Simple. Fantastic movie. But uh, Inherent Vice is also one that gets batted around a lot as kind of being a, a soft-boiled. So by all means, lead us away. Um, so about neo-noir, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, there are a number of neo-noirs that I absolutely love. You know, to just start out with the most obvious one, Chinatown is an mm-hmm. unbelievably great movie in just about every aspect, just almost a perfect film to me. Although it is one of those movies where the stakes are so high, you know, the villain turns out to be not, you know, it starts out as an investigation into adultery, which in an unspoken thing about what most private detectives do is they do divorce work. And it turns out to be this sinister indictment of capitalism, essentially, you know, like Mm. uh, of capitalism devouring this entire section of the country, you know? Yeah. But there are a lot of great, great neo-noirs. The best of them, though, are the ones that stick to the the doomstruck tone, the fatalism, the working class milieu. And those are very few and far between. A lot of people, even in ones that I really enjoy, they what they're doing is they're re- reifying the noir style. And here's the interesting thing about the noir style. And this is one of the reasons why I always say that, you know, with a lot of critics, that noir is a period, it's not a style, is for all the ways that noir is realistic, you know, that it deals with working class people, it has a more realistic view of criminals, it's a very socially aware kind of storytelling. It's also absurd, like, it's, there are so many things about it that are ridiculous. Like the hard-boiled dialogue, you know, that kind of, you know, she had a she had a smile like a, a brick going through a plate glass window. Nobody mm-hmm. talks like that, yeah. <laughs> especially petty criminals. Nobody does. That's very literary. Those are all very literary flourishes. And they make noir extremely distinctive, but that's not realistic. A lot of the caper movies are just not realistic. They would not happen. You know, a lot of the plots in these movies are very unrealistic. So making a good noir is about finding the balance between the realistic elements and the unrealistic elements. And I think the best ones do that. I I feel like the absurd elements and the kind of like taking you out of reality dialogues and a lot of like contrived twists and turns, like it would not be a good, or what brings brings into focus or allows these other realistic elements to exist. Sure, you have to have a good story. Like, if you just tell a real story about some petty criminals meeting their end through their own hubris, it's going to be a bummer, you know? <laughs> like, it's not really going to be that appealing because it's just sad, you know? But uh, one that I think really pulls that off well, that's a fairly recent neo-noir, is uh, Brick. Oh, yeah. um, and the gimmick behind that one is that it's, an, it's a really hard-boiled film noir that's set at a high school. Mm. Yeah. And that sounds so dumb. It sounds so bad. But he finds that balance between the realism and the emotional power and the absurdity of what's going on, where instead of meeting with the chief of police, the detective is meeting with the school principal, you know, Mm. he pulls it off with surprising amounts of uh, balance. And, you know, the end result is really terrific. It's back before people got sick of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. 
Yeah, yeah. Because it's very divisive. Some yeah. people really cannot. I, 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 I see where they're coming from. Among other things, like the plot is just a complete pastiche, like literal references uh, to even. I don't know film noir that well, but I recognize several of them. Uh, yeah. Maltese Falcon, yeah. in particular, yep. but sleep to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah big sleep. Um, but I so I can see why they don't like it because it is like like Leonard says, ludicrous. But also, I I, I still enjoy it. What can I say? Yeah, I, it scratches I, I, a very particular itch. Um, there's a guy named James Foley, probably best known for doing Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, who did some excellent '80s and '90s noirs, including At Close Range. And After Dark, My Sweet, which was an adaptation of a uh, another uh, Raymond Chandler story. I think Andrew Dominic does some really terrific modern neo-noirs. He did Killing Them Softly. I was wondering if I could throw maybe a one or two curveballs at you towards the end here, Leonard, before we sure. take up too much of your time. So I don't have like a good connection of this to your thesis of like this parallel of neorealism being this like parallel, like homologous genre but i'm very interested there was this like transition in italian cinema like kind of similar to how we moved to psychological characters here between like the pulp like uh like they call it, like a polizzi techie in italy to like these giallo films which were literally like the pulp film but they're all about like i am a psycho obsessive killer or there is one it's highly highly stylized mm. Mm. Yeah, giallo is not really my specialty. I know it's a it's a favorite genre of a lot of people. I don't know a ton about it, but it did follow that period in the 70s, you know, and 60s where they were making a lot of really hardcore, hard-boiled cop films. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, you see some spillover in personnel between them, a lot of the same writers. Uh, in fact, the Italian screenwriting community is crazily incestuous, like... You look at almost all of the good Italian films from the late 40s to the early 70s are written by the same people. Um, France, too, you know, like there's a ton of French noirs that are all written by uh, Jacques Ballieu, which is this writing team that did a bunch of uh, really famous detective and noir stories, the most famous of which is in America is probably Diabolique. Oh. Um, so, you know, a lot, just like in America, a lot of this stuff came out of the same writers and I, I don't know. I mean, it could be, this would be strictly amateur theorizing because again, Giallo is not my specialty, that is, but that is what we do on this show, <laughs> but I mean, again, that was when the years of lead were happening in Italy, where there was this extreme amount of violence. Um, you know, there was the American leave behind uh programs where they had kind of dropped in all these fascists who work to keep the communists from getting too much power there's a lot of terrorism and a lot of violence in society and it was very sublimated you know the press was always trying to um you know depending on who owned the newspapers trying to say well this is all the capitalists doing this is all the fascists doing you know and the same big people owned all the media so I kind of wondered to what degree that was a reaction to what was happening in society at the time. Yeah, I mean the the realism of neorealism or or of noir might not see things on the ground got so unreal. Yeah. That realism didn't seem too real anymore arguably and you needed something bigger and weirder. Uh but yeah, Giallo there's uh because, you know 
as far as I could tell, the place where like real movement is happening uh, in terms of like any kind of like pulp writing, I mean, obviously it's not pulps anymore, but the inheritors of pulp writing, it's not really happening that much in sci-fi fantasy. It's not really happening that much in crime unless I'm missing something. It's happening in horror. Mm -hmm. Um, Horror has kind of taken the place where a lot of that place of speculation and of kind of uh, freedom that you you don't get as I mean you still get good writers in in the other genres but I'm not a horror guy seeing, so it's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> I think you're seeing a lot of that right now, especially in the emergence of what they're starting to call full car. Yeah, you're getting that same picaresque of like, mm. oh, here's a person who moves freely between you know respectable society and these kind of fringy cult worlds. Uh, I think you saw that in, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on it, the film where they investigated the Swedish... Oh, cult. Midsommar. Yeah. Somar, Midsommar, yeah. Like, you know, they kind of use the graduate students as the detectives yeah. in that story, right? You know? Never a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, if I do have a thesis around modern horror, it's, you know, grad students will never fix anything. You know? <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us, Leonard. I'm a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're uh, this has been a great talk. Well, great thank talk. you so much for having me. I am always happy to talk about this subject. It's uh something I really love and, you know, the the tendrils of film noir both from the creators, the actors, and the kind of work that they do spread out so far into American entertainment that you know, even though I think a lot of people really don't know much about it anymore, it's so old now, you know, most of it's in black and white, most people don't care about it. It still reverberates in our culture in such a big way. And I think that's why it's it's still important. And especially if you're of a leftist tendency, it talks about so many things that just do not get talked about in popular mm. culture. So, All right. Um, so, sorry. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on, Leonard. Um, we would love to have you back. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. See you again. All right. See you, folks. Haven't you bothered me enough, you big banana head?